0: Up next, on episode 39 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss database design and the shell game of performance, the value of short, focused presentations, and the importance, or not, of a prestigious degree for software engineers, from
1: IT Conversations.
0: Hi, this is Phil Windley.
1: Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow.
2: Oh yes, I love QuickBooks. <laughs> it's a very exciting bit of software. Very fun to use. Yeah. Um, Michael and I were having a little laugh about it today. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's one of this. It's necessary. I appreciate the necessity of it, but I got to tell you, I I really feel that QuickBooks is a good example of software that just doesn't sort of. Hasn't adapted for the new paradigm that we have for well, software. Neither
0: has accounting. So <laughs>
2: get used to it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it's it's
0: the, the the thing about QuickBooks is it's evolved over many years to be the perfect accounting application, or I should say bookkeeping, what? bookkeeping and accounting.
2: Really perfect. There's nothing. it's
0: perfect. Yes, it, okay. yes, you'll see. It doesn't gather any data that you don't. Yes, it, it takes you a long time to learn that it's doing things the way they are because. You know, you you have to have gone through about five or six years of filling out every possible tax form mm-hmm. before you finally appreciate the craziness that's in there.
2: Right. Well, no, I, I appreciate the wisdom you guys are bestowing upon me because you've done this stuff. And <laughs> it's not. I, I yeah. do. I do understand that it's necessary, and I I apologize for being very bulky about it. <laughs> um, I know it's necessary, but I do want to put this to our listeners. I'm kind of curious because Joel maintained, and I can see your point on this, Joel. To be fair, I totally see your point on this. That some of the emerging online stuff, like I think. Uh, Gosh, I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but there's a couple of really popular web-based sort of accounting yeah, solutions. Yeah, like
0: NetLedger, Net is that one of them? Um, uh, uh, Wisabe, I think, is one of them. Oh, I those are... NetSuite, Net that was the one I was thinking of, NetSuite. There was something called NetLedger, yeah. I'm pretty sure. And um, uh, I, I don't know I don't know what Wasabi is, but I think that those are... Um, those are like Mint. Those are like, like personal accounting systems. Those are not... Suitable for, but you can't for use them
2: for County. a small business at all? No.
0: Really? No. I mean, you have issues when you're a small business of of that that are different than, yeah. It,
2: okay, that's fair. But uh, one thing that well, you had warned about was that yeah. the tendency for these guys to hold your data hostage, which I think particularly as a business would be really dangerous, right? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. The
0: web-based ones definitely did that. And I don't even think I'm giving away the pooch if I can say that. I think it was NetSuite. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I should check. <laughs> uh <laughs> Uh, de- but definitely, some to- of them. Some of them wait. You know, ran for a few years and then raised their price a few times.
2: Yeah, no, I, I hear where you're coming from, and I think as a as a small business, that's a serious concern. I mean, for if, if a personal level, it's kind of a concern, but I mean, the I don't even, know. even the QuickBooks the Quick, QuickBooks, every once in a while requires you to upgrade.
0: Um, you know, because something changes in tax laws or something, and they just I don't know why. Right. And uh, and they they get you know, you know people get furious because they're forced to buy the upgrade after you know every three years or something. Uh, right but but it's a lot more reasonable than the online ones usually and and the other the other real reason to use something like quickbooks is every accountant in the world knows right. how to use it because yep. it's just it's just become such a standard in the way that word is
2: right i still think you know that said i mean i, I still think there's an opportunity for someone to be quickbooks compatible but be a little less painful to yep. use because uh, be. I posted on Twitter some of my dissatisfaction. And you know who uh, concurred was Richard White of User Voice, was saying, He's like, I challenge anyone to find a, a software with a worse startup experience than QuickBooks. And he was using the Mac version. So apparently it's.
0: It's sort insane. of hard to disentangle the startup experience of QuickBooks with the fact that you're doing business level bookkeeping for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like, if it's really. Once you know business level book, you know, the, the, the trouble is that the, the way to do bookkeeping for a business is. Kind of hard the double entry bookkeeping and stuff. Uh, right. this is of no, no interest no, I, to any of our listeners. Yep. Well, <laughs>
2: yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's enough on that. We'll delete all it, that. It is reality, though. I mean, yeah. if you're going to be an entrepreneur, then this is something that you have to do. Unfortunately, believe me, you I do. am not happy about it, but you have to do it. It's you have not to that keep hard. Track usually,
0: usually, what they recommend, and this mm-hmm. is what so what I would recommend to a random person: um, get when you start your business. Hire your accountant, the guy who's going to do your taxes at the end of the year, go to his office and have him spend an hour setting up QuickBooks for you and showing you how to enter all the things that happen and how to enter them. And just have him, you know, check over every, you know, every once in a while. Uh, uh, because you'll, you'll, you'll be, you'll be pleased. And it doesn't add up to that much time. Truly, in the history of Fog Creek, you know, I started the company without knowing anything about double entry bookkeeping or anything like that. And I read one book about how double entry bookkeeping should work. Uh, which was very helpful. And I read the, the manual. Does QuickBooks still come with a printed manual?
2: Uh, I, I bought it online, so
0: no. Ooh. See, now the printed book that used to come with QuickBooks was quite good in that it wasn't just teaching you how to use the application. It was actually teaching you how to track money for your small company, mm-hmm. which is um, above and beyond what you would expect from a user manual. And it was pretty well written and kind of in the sense that it told you the things you needed to know and didn't confuse you with the things you don't need to know.
2: Right. Well the good news is that from the business viability standpoint I mean one of my goals was was to make enough from advertising that I could you know pay other programmers each Jared, mm-hmm. and ideally myself would be nice as well Yeah, and uh, that's doing really well I haven't I haven't given you guys the latest data but that that's looking pretty good so Awesome That's encouraging, Mm because I want this thing to be sustaining. And the reason I want it to be sustaining, I'm going to segue into my next topic, is we're continually building out new parts of the site, right? We want to continue to make it better and, you know, more complete. Yeah. And to that end, now that Jared is full-time, and I actually brought Jeff on as well, we've been able to complete two major features last week. I saw them. Yeah. So, it's pretty exciting. So, one is Question Bounty. That's actually live and working now, Mm -hmm. although... We did actually defer. So there's something that has to happen after seven days because there's a timeout on the bounty. We haven't actually done that seven-day part yet because <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we figured, oh, we have seven days to get this working.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many times. I've, I've, I've pulled that stunt in my time.
2: Oh, that's funny. But yeah, Jared's going to finish, obviously, before the seven-day timeline. We've got to finish the end state. But the, the the actual core part of it is working. Like If you, you you put a bounty on a question, e.g. you put up some of your own reputation, it has to be at least two days old. Um, and we've seen it work. We have, actually, we have, we have a little admin page that shows uh, uh, closed bounties. Jared, I should say, Jared is practically the definition of gets things done. Oh, Jared is great. Like there's well, just no a, risk yeah, whatsoever that he won't get it done in time. Oh, no, no, no. These guys are great. I mean, you know, these are, I've talked about this before, but I, these are hand-picked people that I've worked with before. So, and you know, I have total confidence in their, their abilities. By uh, bounty is Lux. working. Bounties is working. We, we've actually seen people get really good answers from it. I mean, not that it works in every time. It's a bit of a gamble, and I think people are upset a little bit because they're like, well, how do you guarantee that we're going to get an answer? I'm like, well, how do you guarantee any – I mean, there's no guarantee. When you're born, there's not like a form that says, okay, we will guarantee X. I mean, this is an illusion. I mean, you don't know what you're going to get, but the good news is yeah, it definitely increases the interest in your question, and I've seen cool. many of them work like Where really somebody's well. placed a bounty and just gotten a good
0: answer. Yes, hey, and that um, was encouraging. So. I don't, I, I like there not being a guarantee because if you know that you're asking a question, like a lot of times there are these questions that are like, how do I do the following? And it's just not possible, right? Like, let, let's say, for example, I want to make, here's something I could post a question for. I want to make it so that Chrome, you know, the new Google web browser does not mm-hmm. animate animated GIFs because it gives me a friggin' headache. And, and that's all I want. And I, I don't even need ads. I I'll look at as many ads as you want as long as I don't flash. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no way to do that. There's just no. They they, don't, they did not expose the the functionality to turn off the animated gifness. Well, the I guess, I guess the, you the have Pro... the source code, right? So you can change the source code. But I just want well, to go I, I... in the dialog box and check off the little turn off animated gifs. And they don't have that. So if somebody's asking a question like that, and the answer is you can't do that, there is no way to do that. I'm sorry. Tough <laughs> it out. Uh, they, they, they're not gonna. They're probably not going to place a bounty because there's a very good risk that
2: they're not going to get an answer and they're going to lose their money, their points. Yeah, I have seen some like that. I've also seen some like, I want to do this really complicated thing. Yeah. How should I do it? You know, and it's kind of like, well, it's complicated. I mean, what do you want us to do? Do it for you? Right, right, right. Uh, so it, it varies, obviously. Is there like a
0: continuum to... from Stack Overflow to like those Rent-A-Guru sites that just write code for you? <laughs>
2: or is there – I think there's like a big enough gap in the middle. Yeah, there could be. But there's definitely a gambling aspect to it now that I think about it. I mean, people have also complained that, you know, it theoretically turns reputation into a form of currency. I don't entirely agree with that because I feel <gasps> like it's something you earn. Because, you know, we, you had that yeah, whole yeah. rant about how, you know, don't pay people. But I, I don't, this isn't, this doesn't feel like payment to me. This feels like tipping. Something nice that you're doing. Tipping. Yes, thank you. Tipping. That's like, perfect. And a little bit like gambling, honestly, (laughs) because you're saying, "Woo, you know, we throw put 150 rep on the line, spin it around, and see what happens." Um, But you know, gambling is fun, and there's definitely a game-like aspect to Stack Overflow, and and part of that is intentional. I mean, we don't want to go too far with it because it gets ridiculous, but I'm comfortable with that.
0: So this is—I was uh, randomly uh, uh, yesterday sitting in the office, uh, sorry, the day before yesterday, sitting in the offices of Google in Munich um, with a bunch of developers there. And I was like, so how many of you ever heard of Stack Overflow? And it was all of them. Wow. I mean, people use it now.
2: That's I just awesome. thought I'd mention that at random. No, that's great. How, speaking of which, let's talk about it. How was your European vacation? Well, it like wasn't a vacation. Like What's that? Say I'm that just going to pretend like it's the movie because it's more exciting. European visual- vacation? Well, yes. It was your more like case. the,
0: the born identity. I was running around European capitals, <laughs> first-class lounges, taxis. Oh, my God. They go so fast on the road in Germany. When they picked me up from the airport, the speedometer was at 190. What, how, much in, in wow. <laughs> how much is that in dollars? Kilometers, How
2: much is that in dollars? Which much is <laughs> that in dollars?
0: <laughs> 190 kilometers per hour in miles per hour. 118. Oh, my God. It was so fast. Th- th- this, this, uh, and it was like a Mercedes limo, too. And it was passing all the other cars on the road. And you didn't even feel it moving, practically, wow. you know, because it was... <sighs> anyway. <laughs> that was cool. That was the first cool thing. Um, but the, con- the conference was not so good. You know, if, you ever, if you're involved at all in any kind of conferences, you don't want to ever be on a panel or in any way going to any kind of conference that has panels or nothing with panels. Panels, bad.
2: Well, they do those at Mix. And I think if, if you don't have too many of them, they're okay. If everything's a panel, you're in trouble. I D- agree with that. But yeah. a handful of panels, not too bad. It, it depends, depends on how many people.
0: If you and I were on a panel, we would, it would be fun. But if there were four other random people there also talking yeah. you just you don't get enough airtime so it's very hard to have more than about maybe maybe 3 people on a panel is okay
2: you also need a good moderator which i'll tell you that's a real real skill yeah. to moderate like random people on a panel i mean you have to have someone in charge that knows what they're doing otherwise it's going to go south
0: it depends on also who's on it like i was on the software panel this is not a software conference this is uh, digital life and design so that's just a very generic conference about everything hosted by Berta, which is a big publishing company over there in in Germany, and um, my panel was called software, and the 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 people on it uh, were a very very wide selection of people that were really did not have we didn't have that much in common, I guess, and um, and so uh, the the uh, moderator tried very hard, uh, Marissa Meyer from uh, Google, tried very hard to come up with sort of interesting topics that would be interesting to anybody, Mm -hmm. but the trouble is everything had to be so vague and you know uh, generalized that it was very hard to come up with anything uh, interesting. Mm. And so I could see that this was a conference that was acti- actively trying to take very, very smart people that they had on their panels and reduce them to saying trite and stupid things.
2: <laughs> you're not just saying that because that's what happened to you? You're, no. You're blaming the conference now? No. So that, so Max,
0: Max, Max Levchin was on my panel. Do you know him? He's, he, he's kind of cool. He's uh, one of the founders of PayPal, and in the past now he runs a startup called Slide which does oh, slideshows yeah. on MySpace or something like that. Anyway, cool. um, <laughs> I would have been bored out of my mind except Max Lepchin challenged me to sneak into one of my answers the words, the last of the Mohicans, which was really hard. <laughs> I didn't. I got it in only at the last minute.
2: <laughs> and
0: I told him he had, to, he had to say righteous indignation at some point.
2: Well, that's an easy one. I was Righteous he, indignation? Come on, who doesn't have that every day? <laughs> I know, but he had to say those words.
0: <laughs> he, didn't yeah. have to, he didn't just have to be it. Um, and that was the only way I was able to amuse myself in the thing I was speaking on. But it's a shame, right? Because if I had been given the equivalent amount of time, like 15 minutes to talk, whatever my, my slice of the time was, 10 minutes even, I could have gotten up and said something interesting in 10 minutes that that audience would have learned something and th- taken something home.
2: But right. yeah, instead, I didn't. Anyway. No, that's a good point. I mean, it's the pitfall of like a panel type discussion versus, you know, more free form or yeah. – Little Grok Talks is what I've – little 10-minute sessions are really what I refer to as like Grok Talks where you just somebody gets up and talks on some topic for a very narrow amount of time. If they prepared,
0: those can be awesome. We did, uh, we did this thing at the Business of Software last year called Pachachka, which is this Japanese thing. You, you put up some PowerPoint slides, and you have to come prepared with 20 PowerPoint slides, and they advance for you automatically every 20 seconds. You don't get to advance them yourselves.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. So you yeah, got, I remember reading about that. Six, That's cool. Six
0: minutes and 40 seconds, and you have to be so well-prepared – to have these slides changing at the right time, uh, the, we, we, and we had a contest. We had, I think, uh, I don't know, six or eight people doing these, and uh, the winner was uh, um, uh, Alexis uh, Ohanian, the guy who draws the uh, cute aliens on Reddit. Oh, and nice. he had prepared his so well that like, the slide would ch- change at the perfect time and provide like, the perfect punchline for what he had just said. <laughs> and it was just a, the, an awesome six minutes and 40 seconds. Uh, and, and, and most of the other Pachachkas were pretty good too. People just prepared a lot more and they tried to, when they tried to distill their idea down to six minutes and 40 seconds, uh, and make it clear and punchy, um, mm-hmm. it really worked well. And the ones that didn't prepare as well or didn't have something as interesting to say, uh, fortunately you were mercifully short. <laughs> you only had to wait a couple of minutes before the next person was,
2: was all on. Yeah. Well, you know, Jeff Dalgas, the adjunct member of the team mm-hmm. recently gave a presentation on, uh, Stack Overflow in Corvallis, which is where he's from, to a user group. Oh, cool. And the, the, piece, the key piece of advice I gave him on a presentation was like, always end early. Don't ever, ever go over. If you do anything else, yeah. end on time. Ideally, end early. Yeah. Because nobody says at the end of a presentation, wow, well, I wish that had been much, much longer. longer. <laughs> you know? I mean, right? So uh, to me, that's the key piece of advice. And it sounds like what you're describing is, is where you've, you've taken that and you've made it part of the rule set of like you can't go over. By it definition. depends. I mean,
0: there are people that have excellent one-hour presentations. Uh, like so, like Seth Godin, for example. I, I, there's a lot of people who will do a fantastic hour, um, and it's not that you'd want it to be longer, but but that if you did ask them to do it in half an hour, uh, you'd miss out. You'd miss out a lot. You just wouldn't learn as much.
2: Right. But it takes a lot of skill to pull off those really long. It's just like writing. I mean, if you can write yeah. something really long and pull it off, it's
0: I mean, a lot of preparation. Extremely good. You have to write probably about twenty pages of writing to to equal an hour of of speaking. If you were right. just to read off of those pages.
2: Well, to me, it's it's almost like programming. It's like if in all cases try to err on keeping your code like small because large code is just going to have more bugs, more problems, more Mm -hmm. things that can go wrong with it. So if you can be short, you're going to be doing better on on the whole. So uh, it's a good generalized piece of advice to give people with regards to presentations. I think is you know stay short, stay small. Stay punchy.
0: So, if you're doing an hour, then you wanna, and you know that you're gonna need about eighteen to twenty pages for that hour. You wanna write forty pages, <laughs> and you wanna cut and delete and con, you know consolidate until you've got it down to about eighteen pages, and then that's right. gonna be an awesome speech. Hey, uh, speaking of uh, conferences and all that kind of stuff, what uh, is this? Is are we allowed to say anything about the, the
2: mix uh, thing? Uh, not yet. No. Oh, okay. Um, we're we're in discussions to be uh, not official. Part- yeah, just to be part of Mix in some way. But we'll we'll talk about that more later, I think, on next calls. But I do want to get to um, the next feature because we actually had two major feature rollouts. Yeah, the bounty the other and the news. Bounty is yeah. one. And then the other one is um, one thing that people complained about and I empathize with, too, is that you can't really tell when people have sort of replied to you in Stack Overflow. There's nothing poking you and saying, hey, look, this guy answered your answered question, your question. Yeah. or these people on comment. commented on your stuff. So now we do. There's a little envelope icon. It's it's sort of cribbed from Reddit, actually, um, that lights up next to your name at the top of the page. And actually, it's, up it it goes, up it's a up. envelope
0: icon. It's the sluttiest envelope icon in the world. It's <laughs> cribbed from Reddit. It's probably a part of a font somewhere. It's just everywhere, that little envelope icon.
2: Yes. It's the yes. Sun So, in burn. fact, oh. mine was lit up, and I just clicked on it. I had a response two hours ago, so... Uh, it's a oh, comment. Okay, this! This is
0: awesome. You can give it like a range of dates.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it's fun. That's something Jeff worked on. That was a major Whoa. thing. And this is this is going to fold into our email eventually for people that want email notifications of changes. What if I what if I go all the way back to the day I was born? You can't. We have actually have another thing I can actually talk about is we have a bit uh, of a performance days. problem because uh, our our the way we chose to store. What we call posts, which is questions and answers, and then revisions, so we have two tables we have posts and revisions um, and then for review and post, the revisions that we usually care about are the first revision and the uh, the the current revision mm-hmm. so there's basically pointers in the post table to records in the revision table um, and this sounds fine this sounds fine on paper. Um, it has a few downsides in that. For example, like if you re-tag something due to the way we're storing the data, we have to store duplicates of the, the post and everything else in there. So it wasn't optimal from that perspective. But what turns out to be the big killer with this approach is just the fact that we're joining all the time. Like In order to talk about a question, mm-hmm. I need to go get the current revision, right? I mean, in any case, because I need to figure out who the author is. Uh, Stuff like that. And that's all stored in the revision because there could be 10 revisions to a question. You could have a revision. I could have a revision. You know, uh, John Skeet could have a revision. Um, So it doesn't sound like much. So this is like the relational databases in a nutshell, right? It's like, oh, just go do a join. But it turns out these joins are unbelievably expensive. I mean, if you want to do things. Really? Is it just not indexed right? No, believe me, it's indexed. uh, Oh, it's those memo fields. That's why. Uh, well, that's right. There's some large strings attached to revision. Yeah, those always
0: take says. longer because they're not like they're not like in line with the rest of the table. They're in some big blob storage place, and right. even the APIs never get them out directly. They always read them out like 64k at a time.
2: Yeah, right. Now there's definitely some semi-large fields in there, depending on the size of the post. They're variable size fields, of course, by definition. But we find that even even when you're dealing with just regular tables, joins are not free by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. And every time you're doing a join, that's a very real cost to the query. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to do like a massive refactoring to fix this. We're going to move a lot of the data up into the post table so mm-hmm. that like 99% of the time we're, we're talking about the current revision of a question or answer. We'll just have to look at that one record in posts.
0: This sort of a, uh, you know, this brings okay. up sort of a, uh, a a more general, a general problem that probably a lot of people have been thinking about. Because if you look at those What am I talking about here? Um, A lot of people have developed these sort of libraries that are less than relational databases for use on very, very large, highly scalable websites. So, for example, I think Google's thing is called Bigtable. A lot of times they just have some big, gigantic, ultra-super-duper scalable name-value pair storage. Think of something like... um, like Berkeley DB, where it's, it's, I can store things for you, I can look at them pretty fast, but I'm not going to give you full relational capabilities, and in particular, you don't get
2: joins. Right. I can I can appreciate why they do that, because, I mean, I've worked with databases for a long, long time. I mean, going all the way back to, uh, you know, DB4, or whatever it was called, DBase 4, and then mm-hmm. Fox Pro. And, I mean, I've done this for a long time, so I really understand how databases work. Not that I don't make mistakes, because believe me, I do. But... It's just interesting to me that, like, we built up the new database server, which is now ready to go. By the way, all this stuff is ready to ship finally. Cool. And I was doing some just basic benchmarking. So I loaded the Stack Overflow database on our new database server. So this thing is basically 50% faster than our old server, roughly. I mean, it has a 50% faster CPU. It has a lot more memory, mm-hmm. faster bus, more level 2 cache, all that good stuff. So you'd expect it to do about 50% better. And, and Well, not if, the other, not if it was already maxing out, sort of. But it's not. Our database okay. is not even close to
0: maxing out. Well, wait, that's um, not what I What I meant is you wouldn't expect it to be any faster. Like, for example, if you have more memory, it would be faster, but only if that means that you can keep more things in memory. Sure. You know, whereas if it's, you weren't already using up all your memory in the first place, then that additional memory isn't going to help.
2: Right. You're always playing a game of, like, where's the bottleneck? I mean, right, this is, right, like, right, right. you know, this is hopefully, as a programmer, this is why I like programmers to mess with hardware, because you, you learn to play this game of, like, the shell game of like, okay, now the bottleneck's the disk. Oh, now the bottleneck's the memory. Oh, now the bottleneck's the CPU. And you're really just trading off bottlenecks at some level, right? (laughs) You can do compression, for example. Compression's a classic example of trading CPU bottleneck for memory, which is usually a good deal based on CPU speed. But anyway, um, so when I loaded up the Stack Overflow database and was running some comparison queries, I'd run them on my local machine, I'd run them on the new database server, and then i run them on our current live database server. It's not really a fair comparison because the live database server is live, although, in all honesty, our load is really, like, our CPU graph is, like, almost null. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we've just gotten to the point where we're not using CPU at all. And uh, we're running out of memory a little tiny bit, but <laughs> it, it shouldn't have a dramatic impact on the results. As and this is, uh, uh, r- this is serving 10 million hits a month, 10 million page, pages a month. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's doing it no problem. Um, awesome. But what I found was, and this is the interesting So, so the main difference between these machines is that really CPU, like my desktop has a 3.5 gigahertz dual core, mm-hmm. the, uh, curr- the new server has 2.5, and then the, the current database server has 1.8. So you've got this continuum of 3.5, 2.5, 1.86 that you're talking about on CPU. And I've found that for a lot of queries, unless you're just massively exceeding the amount of memory, like you're doing some query that's pulling like gigabytes of data. Mm-hmm. Um, it scaled really linearly with CPU. I mean, I'm talking like you go from like 100 milliseconds to, to like 60 milliseconds on the new server. And then on my machine, it would be like 40 milliseconds. Hmm. So this Wait, why don't we put your machine me. in the data center then? <laughs> well, the shocking thing is people, when you talk about... How, did you you, know,
0: how do you even have a machine that's faster than the one in the data center?
2: Well, it just CPUs because server CPUs are, you know, they're not like top end. Like they go with the conservative Ready? process model. So yeah. Intel, the fastest CPUs aren't necessarily the server CPUs in terms of clock speed. Um, but this is contrary to what you're told. You're told, oh, a CPU is not that important on a database server. What you really want is lots and lots of memory and super, super fast disks. Well, that's because that used and to be the problem. But I think for our database, because first of all, we have 24 gigs of memory now, which is just a ton. Uh, that's six times more than what we have now. How big is our database? If we have 24 gigs of memory, how big is the database Oh, gosh. I mean, on disk, as a backup, it's like 3.5 gig. Okay, so it's all on RAM. It's 100% RAM. It's not quite 100% RAM anymore. One thing I've noticed is that certain queries, when I run them, Mm -hmm. they'll be just slow the first time. And the second time you run it, they have to page fault in eventually. But but, but but under
0: most operating conditions, eventually, everything that anybody uses just sits in memory.
2: Yeah, right. No, for the most part, it's in memory, although I am seeing some cases where uh, we're definitely paging now in some form. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about that because, A, I want to make sure that the new database server is faster. And the good news is it is. It's not 50% faster as I'd hoped, but it's more like 33% faster, like across the board. Like in generally anything you're doing, any query, this new server will be about 33% faster. But also that, you know, CPU matters. I mean, yeah, yeah. if your query's in memory, it's all about the CPU, Don't really. Don't forget that f-
0: th- a 30% improvement doesn't mean that the average person gets their reply 30% faster. Because it's possible that several people have all submitted a query at the same time and you're waiting for all of them. So it might mean that you're, you know, a bunch of people have submitted a query and you've got to wait like five seconds. And now you're only going to have to wait like three seconds instead of five seconds while their things are finished. And that might mean that the computer gets to idle faster, which may mean that an, an increasing number of people don't have to wait online at all. Did you ever sure. take a, a queuing theory class or study queuing theory in any way? I don't think so. It's kind of interesting. There's a whole mathematics of like people arrive at the bank and they wait in line, and how long does it take them to get served, and so forth. And um, one of the interesting rule of thumbs that that I remember as being, you know, not a formal result of queuing theory, but something that you can kind of keep in mind if you're ever, you know, setting up a restaurant or a, a, a line of people to get coffee at, at your coffee shop or whatever, any kind of situation where there's a line serving people, um, is that there's, there's 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 these various measurements that you use in queuing. Theory. One of them is called utilization, and that's the percentage of the time that the people serving the queue are busy. So if you've got tellers at a bank, what percentage of the time are they working and what percentage of the time are they idle? Or, you know, telephone operators, the people who, you know, t- pick up the phone at Land's End. Um, and and the, the total amount of, of, of time that they spend working divided by the total amount of time that they have available that they're sitting at their desk ready is called the utilization. And one of the common results in queuing theory is that a utilization of 80%. All kinds of things start to go wrong, and the 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 length of the lines the average amount of time that somebody waits in lines tends to get really really bad if the utilization goes above approximately eighty percent and so obviously um, the the number would be a higher percentage if there's a smaller number of sm- a larger number of small transactions and it would be a lower percentage if there's a et etc but the point is that uh, you know kind of as a rule of thumb and this is something you can measure for your own scenario, but as a rule of thumb um, typically if you if you have a bunch of bank tellers and they're working. 79% of the time, most customers will come in and not have to wait in line at all. But if you just get up to like 81% utilization that they're busy, then the average customer might come in and wait 15 minutes online. Wow. Because there's, there's a certain point at which, um, you know, there's a certain, you could do this sort of mathematical simulation where you say people are arriving with a certain probability at any given time. And that's uh, something called the Poisson distribution—the the probability that people will arrive if everybody arrives independently—and uh, they tend to distribute according to a certain curve. And so, there's a certain probability that a big chunk of them will arrive all at the same time. And um, the the if the utilization goes too high, you get to the point where maybe you're serving everybody. Like, if you imagine a utilization of 100 percent—you are serving everybody—but the you know the fourth person to arrive in the day is going to have to wait for the first three people to be done. And the last person to arrive in the day is probably just going to get dealt with right away. But but during the day, you're going to have all kinds of people who arrive and have to wait for hours
2: to to to, to wait their turn, basically.
3: Hmm.
2: So well, I remember um, reading yeah. this is this has a lot of operating system implications because isn't this mm-hmm. the way the scheduler works in the operating operating system really critical to like overall performance? Like kind of, yeah. <laughs> I remember even in Vista, like they improved some things about like you could get priority scheduling. Like if you're doing multimedia playbacks, you can't get kicked out of the queue and have stuttering. And right, right, this is really the art of uh, designing an operating system, isn't it? Is making sure that it's just playing the shell game with the bottlenecks, right? Like I/O, disk, CPU, and making sure that nobody's like starving, unless something catastrophic is happening, in which case you're just you're just hosed. One thing I've noticed over the years is whenever something's
0: taking too long. I'll switch to another window, open a browser, (laughs) and try to do something else. So you're kind of punishing the CPU for being slow or or your computer in general. You're actually making it a little bit worse, which is launching up other apps to keep you entertained while the computer works on your first process and therefore making it even more overloaded at precisely the moment where it needs some extra CPU power.
2: Well, one thing I liked about you know Vista introduced this new uh, system performance metric, um, which is a reasonable set of benchmarks. But what, what I liked about it that I thought they really got right, mm-hmm. and so pay attention. Something that Vista actually did correct, Joel. If you want to write this down? <laughs> but it was that it actually runs the pen. benchmark, and it, it it actually takes the the lowest number is your score. In other words, wherever your bottleneck is, mm-hmm. that determines your entire score. Mm-hmm. So if you have a really slow disk, say you get a one on your disk score, mm-hmm. that's your overall score. Oh, this is which the makes, uh, yeah. Which makes total sense, because that's sure. really how you should look at it. Like, yep. where is my bottleneck? Yep. That's the thing I need to improve. So it really incentivized you. It's like, wow, 1.0 on disk. I could have a 4.3. All my other stuff is at 4.3 if I just get rid of that stupid slow disk. Um, and that was really smart and really the correct way um, to look at performance.
0: So anybody else? I, have, uh, I put Windows 7 on a laptop here, and it just freezes. The whole system just freezes. The mouse won't move. It's just like hard, hard frozen.
2: Ooh. Is that the laptop, no. or is that I haven't, Windows 7? I, haven't, I have not heard of that. All I've heard is, like, people liking Windows 7. Yeah, that's what even. I heard. <laughs> but I don't like it because it makes the whole laptop freeze. But the laptop may just suck, you know. It's a Dell. I won't
0: mention that in my name. But... Huh.
2: Interesting. No, uh, I, I don't know. It could be a hardware problem. I mean, yeah. it's beta. It doesn't... It, it,
0: I'm, yeah.
2: I'm not a big beta operating system guy. I don't really enjoy it. Well, it's that. a laptop that
0: I hardly use for anything, but it's the laptop that we use here at the office for demos when somebody has to put on a demo on the main, uh, on the main stage.
2: Well, it'll be nice. One thing I am looking forward to is I view this as just a polished version of Vista because Vista just lacks so much polish. So it sounds like they're going to get the polish right this time from what I've been hearing, which is nice. Yeah. So finally people can get off XP. I think my concern was that like, XP is freaking ancient. I just I, I deeply am concerned with people who are comfortable running a 2001-era operating system. I mean, granted, it's been patched and I all mean, that I mean, it's so. secure. It's, so, it's still faster than Windows 7. Well... It was, you know what the mem- minimum memory requirement was for, for XP? Do you remember? 512. Oh, six or
0: 64. <laughs> uh, six, awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's not true. I mean, it, it, that may be the official requirement, but you really needed probably 256 or 512 well, to actually, be happy. actually, no, I take that back. It was 128K, I believe. Okay. So you probably needed 512 to be really actually happy. But like, let's put it this way I've got this little laptop that I got a year ago. It's a little dinky, um, it's the ThinkPad X61. It's like the, the 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 super lightweight, tiny little low end um, Lenovo ThinkPad, mm-hmm. and it's awesome. It fit you can take it on the plane. I take it with me everywhere. I, I love it. It's running XP. Do I really want to put Windows Seven on that, or is that going to
2: just bog bog that poor thing down? Well, supposedly it does better on like netbooks and stuff. And by the way, when I said kilobytes, I meant megabytes. Sorry, my brain is malfunctioning. That's okay. We
0: nobody. Can keep <laughs> Hopefully, track you of.
2: guys just mentally translated. No, nobody meant. can keep track of any of that stuff anyway anymore. <laughs> It's megabytes, gigatera, zetabytes. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Who cares? Do we have any listener questions this week? We you know I, a few. I, men. I, yeah, I, I
0: messed up again and didn't prepare them because I was sort of busy right before that. But let's see. Let's pop something up and see what comes. <laughs> <laughs> it worked pretty well last week. Although okay. I did get an email.
2: I got an email saying. Did you see okay. that email? I did, but I let you read those. I, I figure you're in charge of this part of the podcast.
0: Okay. Um let's see. Uh there's a there's a whole bunch. Here's one that I'm interested in. Comments on the solid
2: discussion. Yeah, let's do that because there are a lot of there's a lot of feedback on that. Yeah, I wasn't I didn't really have
0: enough the truth is, let me be completely fair here. Um I don't uh what's the word I'm looking for? Know anything about anything. <laughs> Sorry. I, I really I did not do my research on what what solid is, what it talks about. And I didn't really want to overly criticize any particular principle of object-oriented design or whatever. I just do often have a feeling when I'm listening to those people, especially based on the examples that they give, which now this week I was listening to Hansel Minutes again, and now for two weeks in a row, they brought up this stupid issue about whether um, a, a, a square is a subclass of a rectangle. But who the hell has classes for squares and rectangles? What kind of application is this where you have classes for squares and rectangles? And, and so it made me think, you know, I really do feel like, uh, and this is the only point I really wanted to make, is that a lot of the strong object-oriented design kind of stuff that you hear about uh, mm-hmm. and that you hear from is um, doesn't sound like it's people who are writing a lot of code. So, for example, um, there's this business of test-driven development, which um, you know you write the test first, and and not necessarily a test in order to provide QA, so to speak, but a test in order to say I'm about to write some code and I think it's going to do the following thing, and before I even write the code, I'm going to write a test, and the test is going to fail because the code isn't written. And then when I write the code, it's going to instantly pass, because, uh, and that'll allow me to always have a little unit test for that little piece of code that I wrote. And I thought about um, some code that we were thinking of adding to Copilot. And this is just one tiny example, and I can give you a million, but Copilot is this remote desktop application. And in order to make it work really, really well under very low bandwidth conditions, it uses JPEG compression on the screen, which makes it a lot faster and uh, we use really strong JPEG, jpeg so you can't quite you know, I mean all the text is blurry but that's okay cuz it's a good trade off you're just you're, you're just trying to do a quick tech support over the internet over somebody with probably a really crappy internet connection mhm and if the text is blurry, it doesn't reduce your ability to do text support. But if the, it takes forever to display the page, that does reduce your ability to do text support over the internet. So that's a good trade-off. But I sort of thought that, um, it would be cool. I entered a little bug into the bug database here at Fogbugs Fog Creek, um, suggesting that, they, that maybe we give the user a switch to turn off the compression or to reduce the compression if they happen to be on a high bandwidth connection and they'd rather have it show up clearly rather than blurry. And, um, so, uh, you know, we'd, we'd probably still use JPEG compression. We'd, we'd probably just use like a lower level of JPEG compression. And um, uh, and I thought about that. And I thought about how you've got this screen that's showing basically effectively real-time video, a real-time screen image from somewhere else over the internet. And it's got all these JPEG artifacts on it. And I now need to write a function, a little button on the toolbar that's going to reduce the JPEG scaling. So it's whatever, think about how much code you have to write to make a button on the toolbar, and it's just going to change a parameter to the JPEG compression library from, you know, a a 37 to a 10, let's say, right? And that's all it's going to do. And so this is, you know, five, 10, 20 lines of code to to implement this feature, let's say. Mm -hmm. But to implement the test once, you have to somehow create a JPEG that is the same as this other JPEG that you have, but compressed at a different level using some, it, there, isn't, there is no way to actually construct this test in advance of actually running it. Or if you did, it would be extremely hard. I mean, it would take a lot of work to write some kind of test that's going to know what that other machine that you're connecting to, which would have to be some kind of simulated machine that generated certain simulated experiences. And then you'd have to, I guess, get your own JPEG library and hope that it's the same as the JPEG library that we're using and let it do both kinds of compression. And I mean, this is just... This, it, it would take way more work to write this test than to write the code. And this is, I think, a classic example of you ain't going to need it, which is all this work that you put into that test, and yet that code is really only doing 10 lines of code. It's going to work. It's not... Or, you know, whatever. Changing a parameter in some function call from, a, from 37 to, a, to a, a 9 is not really going to fail. You're not going to have a bug there necessarily.
2: So, I always um, got the impression that these unit tests were written more for, like, encryption libraries and, you know, more like core libraries. Oh, yeah, that's fine, and I'm all for it.
0: If it's a, when you say it's a core library, anything that's basically doing manipulation on data directly, there's nothing real-time, there's nothing video, there's nothing GUI, there's nothing webby, there's nothing mm-hmm. HTML-y, all those kind of things It makes a lot of sense. But, I mean, who works on, you know, that's a very, very finite number of apps that are like that. And, um, you know, a lot of times it's just so much harder to construct a test than to than to, uh, and and I and I and I think it's okay that people then you know I, I think it's great if you use test driven development for your encryption library or your compiler or something like that, but when you start to get kind of religious about it because you're listening to the object oriented d- design gurus writing their books, and you start to. Try to do this all the time because you feel dirty or smelly, I think they use the word code smell to describe what you 're doing if you 're not doing exactly what they tell you to do, and you, and you start to feel kind of guilty about that and sort of and, and, and maybe not for the real reason so So I could definitely imagine uh, you know uh, going back hey do you listen to Hanselman 's uh, podcast, Scott Hanselman Hansel minutes I have a few times all right. well th- this is anybody who listens to the, 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 if this is the only podcast you listen to, and you want a second podcast. That might be the second one to to, to listen to because that's a really um, you know it's I, I think a lot of developers will really enjoy that and um, anyways but but the, but for the second time he was Scott was talking about some person he worked with that was just driven to have a hundred percent code coverage or a hundred percent test coverage of all their code which um, it, it, which he thought was a fine thing and I think is probably a, a real waste of time and to me it sounds almost like. Uh, like a mental illness, right? Like you are mentally you're like a compulsive, obsessive compulsive behavior that's causing you to not think, but instead just make sure that you have 100% code coverage because that's not free. That 100% code coverage and all those tests that you wrote, you don't you don't get that for free. You got that because you decided to spend time doing that instead of something else. And the time that you spent doing that may or may not be something that really adds a lot of value. Um, you know what I mean? Like, like you may be able to add value to the quality of the product even. Ah, sorry, I started playing that thing. Too soon.
2: (laughs) Yeah. No, I I think with with Stack Overflow, certainly, I mean, I'm pro-testing. I'm pro-anything that gives you a good quality product. But I think, you know, it's again, it's like that shell game. You're playing a shell game. You're balancing resources. And like you said, this stuff is not for free. So Mm -hmm. if you feel like you want to put your effort in the unit testing basket, then by all means do that. But I, I no. think for me the way the way we do I, I, I disagree. Over-
0: <laughs> I say you it, you should you should pick the things that are most going to benefit from unit testing or, te- or or testing and development, which are different things, and pick the things that that are most going to benefit for that. And by all means, then go ahead and do it. But there's a lot of other stuff where the bang for the buck you're going to get off of that is nothing compared to the bang for the buck out of other stuff you can you could be spending that time on.
2: Well, I, I tend to agree, and that, that's kind of what, where yeah, I was going sorry. to was the I like to do things that result in a better experience on the site, mm-hmm. um, whether it's answering support emails, you know following up on user voice, you know polishing some feature on Stack overflow it's just there 's very few cases where I feel like okay i 'm going to sit down and write a unit test, and this is going to result in a measurably better experience for the average user that comes to Stack overflow mm-hmm. I mean the only exception I think we've historically had is when we had a feature that we feel like was so complicated that we like felt like we would get it seriously wrong without. Some level of unit testing to, to assist us in just making sure that it 's actually working, because mm-hmm. the classic unit test cycle is like you write some code and then you, you have to make sure that code works before you, compi- you know you check it in right mm-hmm. so what do mm-hmm. you do at this point, you do some sort of ad hoc testing. you like click around or you, you go put to the in immediate window and you type some stuff yeah, yeah, so let's say you do this a hundred times, so you keep working on this feature, so th- for those hundred times that clicking around and putting values in and seeing yeah. if it works could have been automated in some way, theoretically, that's true. if, it's, if yeah. it's easy to automate. Yeah. But for a lot of the features that we put in, honestly, there's just not that much testing that's necessary, before. The, not because we're genius programmers, but because they're just not that complicated of features, right? Mm-hmm. We know they're going to work because we tested them locally, we tested them on dev, and we never think about them ever again. Yeah. And, and this I is, guess the other reason... It's not politically it, correct to
0: say, but but we are good programmers, actually. <laughs> and I think that, to some extent, that means that... that you know, for a team of good programmers, the prescriptions are probably going to be different than from a team of uh, maybe mediocre programmers or, or, or average programmers or bad programmers.
2: The, the other case that I was getting to that would make me want to do this is we have a feature that we keep breaking. In other words, we keep having – what's the fancy word for this – when you backslide regression. you create more bugs, regression. regression, thank you. You have a bunch of regressions, and you tend to have the same regressions in the same areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, for example, let me give you an example of one that I've done. I have broken the C++ tag at least five times because <laughs> right. The, right. The, the escaping and encoding issues are very right. complicated because we allow plus as yeah. a delimiter in the URL, so it's just weird. So that's one area where I kind of wish, but those are really rare for us to have areas that we break over and over. Yeah, um, It's just not that common. So I I have mixed feelings about it, but again, it's a balance that every programmer has to decide for themselves, and uh, quality is obviously important. I'm not going to say that quality isn't, but there's a lot of ways to get there. I feel like there's a lot of ways to get there, and I kind of dislike some of the dogma around Right, it's the
0: obsessive-compulsive things where it just starts to become like a hygiene. You start to feel like I'm dirty unless I do these things, and that's where the risk is that you will waste time doing something kind of non-optimal that you haven't thought through.
2: But the other thing is, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable coming out on record saying I'm anti-unit testing because I feel like it is a significant advance in quality for software engineering, like across the board. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have mixed feelings about this discussion. Uh, but the other hand, I have to be honest with people about what I actually do. I feel like I'm lying at some level. It's like, oh, you should unit test, but we're not unit testing to the degree, <laughs> to a significant degree. When you talk about unit testing, we probably don't even like add up mm-hmm. to the right amount there. So. I just want to be honest with people. So but anyway, let's get to the question.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't even know what it's going to be, so it may be completely off the wall. This is from uh, Michael uh, Cohn. Philadelphia,
3: Pennsylvania.
0: Wait. Start over. Start over. Stack,
3: start over. On the last stack, Mike Coney, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Coney. Can you hear him? hmm On the last Stack Overflow, Joel was talking about the solid principles in Robert Martin and his idea of creating an interface that only represents the parts of the target class that you want to use. The idea, as I understand it, is to isolate your class from changes that it doesn't care about in the target class. This sounds awfully familiar. About 10 years ago, I worked for a company doing consulting. The client I was working for had a system architect that wanted us to create interface classes that would go in between two components that they purchased from the same vendor. Components were designed to simply plug together and work. Our stated reason for this idiocy was to make it easier to change out one of the components, if that ever became necessary. Thankfully, my boss talked them out of doing this work, as we weren't looking forward to debugging the mess that it was bound to create. I think that this part of what Martin is advocating is the same over-isolation that architects have been prone to for years and years and years. Yes, Yes. In the real world, when you need to change out a component, you simply write the new component to the old interface. And if it turns out that the old interface wasn't sufficient, then you end up having to rewrite both sides anyway, and having an interface in between doesn't buy you anything. Yep. Thanks for listening.
0: I think you just agreed with us. Yes. And that's a good story, actually. It's, 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 it is it's it is something about, you know, the interesting thing is to look at, you know, when an engineer describes engineering principles, and you actually look at the things that engineers actually build, th- those principles make sense in in very, very limited frameworks. So, for example, if it's the thing about the interface so that you could swap out or whatever, it's like, yeah, we have standard AA batteries and they have to be a certain size and shape and they have to have the positive electrons flowing into, into the negative electrons on the north side and the south side in the right order. Huh. But And if you did it the other way, then people would be upset. And But once you've defined that specification, and you can work really, really hard in making those protocols or the specifications work, but that doesn't mean that every single thing, every single engineer builds... Is, consists of individual components, all of which are are sort of the ultimate and perfect engineering uh, because that would be that would be costly it 's not just a matter of wasting the effort to write all that code that creates that arbitrary interface uh, that isolates components from one another uh, in a way that they weren 't even meant to need to be isolated from one another um, but if you think about that in the real world it uh, It, it, it's guaranteed to be inefficient. It's guaranteed to create inefficiencies. So, for example, you know, I have a cell phone and the cell phone has a GSM chip in it somewhere, but I can't swap out that GSM chip with another GSM chip. And a good engineer might have built a cell phone with Pop out user replaceable GSM chips, but that would have required uh, you know another little slot and a little thing that I could open, and it would have required that the interface between the GSM chip and the rest of the cell phone be um, you know a plug and play kind of thing rather than something soldered on. So it would have been bigger and heavier and more expensive, and who knows if any manufacturers would ever come along with a superior GSM chip that it was worth installing on there, and if it would really be truly compatible. So yes, you do these things for the headphone jack. But you don't have to do it for every single little component internally in the application. And maybe maybe, um, maybe we're not giving um, um, Uncle Bob enough credit. Maybe the idea of these solid principles is like, well, these are the principles. It doesn't mean you always apply them. You have to use your brains as to whether to apply them or not.
2: Yeah. I I have mixed feelings about a lot of the architecture stuff. I, I feel like the ulti- the only metric that really matters is whether you're shipping software that really solve some problem for somebody. Mm-hmm. And I've become more and more reluctant over time to really judge anybody's methods that they use to be successful at this. Now, I, I will say that the teams that tend to be successful do follow some patterns. And you should look at teams that have been successful and the things that they do. They hire smart people. But yeah, it, 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 kind of, it doesn't generalize well. It yeah. kind of breaks down into just, just have a really good team that really <laughs> yeah. really like gels yeah. Uh, and it becomes less about even the technology because you know there's been all these really oh, great yeah. products released in PHP which I continue to believe is this really horrible horrible broken yeah, language. Yeah. Like people talked about, you know, basic sort of what is it corrupting the minds of programmers. Oh yeah, PHP is, is a direct rip off of Visual Basic that,
0: that didn't even or VB script that doesn't even take advantage with those stupid dollar signs and their inability to redirect correctly. It's not even it's not even a well-designed rip off of VBScript. script.
2: Yeah, and so it it tends to make people write really bad code, but at the same time, you'll have these these applications that are like WordPress, which are great. Yeah. Um, and they might be written horribly internally, or maybe they're written really great. It I is think WordPress' to is reputation has been
0: kind of a mess internally.
2: Yeah, but By but reputation. it's possible to create these really great things that really sure. help a lot of people and yeah solve the the goal that they intended to absolutely know,
0: create. So and in fact, I, I feel like it,
2: yeah, to be ahead. fair,
0: I think that as the price of an application goes up, the likelihood that it was written with a good tool <laughs> goes down. So, for example, those, the, 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 the really, really expensive enterprise software that does some big, humongous, complicated thing, that software is selling for a million dollars a seat. It looks terrible. The user interface is horrible and hobbled, but, uh, and it's written in Visual Basic 3.0. But it does actually solve a business need that makes it worth a million dollars a seat. And so that's why somebody's getting very rich off of it. Um, so, so there.
2: Yeah. That was I mean, I, I, yeah. I can kind of see where you're coming from, where you had talked about writing newer articles. You felt like you had said everything that kind of you wanted to say. <laughs> like at some point, this stuff all repeats, right? And right. How, we, we yeah. talked about it yeah. before. There's a whole new generation of programmers coming up, and I, I do hope that they learn a better way and are able to avoid some of the mistakes that we made. Uh, but beyond that... I don't know. I don't think there's a lot of specific stuff you can point to. Right. right. Like solid principles or whatever that's really going to save the day. Like just because I learned solid principles, I'm shipping an app that, you know. And what you're saying here is itself not new. It's a Frederick Brooks essay
0: called No Silver Bullet. (laughs) <laughs> That's that true.
2: <laughs> I'm, I am myself repeating "no silver bullet."
0: Yeah. So if we had all just friggin' read "no silver bullet," we wouldn't be having these uh, these conversations. And I don't think anybody pretends to have silver bullets anymore. I think they they claim to uh, just have sort of advancements, incremental advancements in the state of art and programming technology. But I found that, for example, an in, in advancement in, a, in you add another feature to a compiler. Uh, for example, adding uh, garbage collection is the easiest one, but even like some of all the cool new features in C Sharp um, that are starting to come down the pike and um, new features in Python 3.0. And all those things are probably going to advance the -the state-of-the-art in programming a lot more than any of these object-oriented design principles possibly can. So there. All right, enough about object-oriented design. You
2: want to take some Stack Overflow questions? Uh, Sure. I have one that I looked up. Okay on my favorites list. And it's something we kind of touched on before, and you you know what my answer to this is going to be probably before (laughs) I'm even done saying the title. So save all your laughter until the end. Uh, But it's called, uh, Is Mathematics Necessary for Programming? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the guy, let's see, I'm just going to summarize. This is uh, 15734, so this has been around a while. It's a four-month-old question. He was having a debate with his friend about whether advanced mathematics is necessary for a veteran programmer. Uh, so one guy was saying, oh, no, you only need basic mathematics from, like, high school. Um, mm-hmm. And the other guy was saying that, you know, you you do need uh, advanced math. In order to be a good programmer, you should understand sort of maybe calculus and beyond uh, because it ties into sort of how you design algorithms and things like that. So it was really positioned as a debate, like, you know, how much math do you really need?
0: Well, that's a, that's um, a good question because math, I, I think that the – that the reason that this might become a controversial question is that the curriculum of math as it is taught pretty much universally throughout the world is, um, is a, a very bad curriculum, I think. And a, a lot of people um, uh, who, who I trust who are math professors have, have, uh, have told me this. I <laughs> believe them. The stuff that is taught, the fact that uh, we teach uh, a pretty, pretty standard curriculum Pretty much around the world of uh, starting in high school, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, maybe pre-calculus and calculus. Um, th- th- that's a very bizarre way of teaching mathematics. And it usually burns people out when there's so much more interesting stuff going on in math that doesn't happen until the advanced levels of math. So, for example, things like graph theory, algebra theory, sets, linear algebra, all that stuff is awesome. And you don't need calculus for any of it. And calculus what about just,
2: that? Wait, what eh, about
0: that queuing stuff you're talking about? Wouldn't that yeah? Be some that'd be of- awesome. That'd be freaking cool that's if people talked that. That's, that's not really math. It's too practical to be math. Um,
2: <laughs> that's too practical to be math. That's too useful. Throw that but, out. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, but like uh, optimization techniques, linear algebra, that kind of stuff. And that's as far as I got, unfortunately. And and I and I have sort of peered at the textbooks that I never got to, and I. I recognize that a lot of the more advanced stuff would, first of all, be a lot more, a lot easier. It would be a lot easier for high school kids to learn um, uh, linear algebra than, than integrals, for example. Or um, it would be a lot easier for them to do set theory um, or, um, uh, you know, basic like algebra, uh, algebra in the advanced mathematical sense of sort of the theory of numbers um, or uh, that kind of stuff, uh, different yeah, I don't even know what it is, but, um, I, I'm, everybody who studied math has told me that it gets way easier after calculus. And yet everybody sort of does, calc- you know, the advanced students that I know get to calculus and then just kind of blow up. And they're like, Oh God, if it's going to be any harder than this, I, I quit. Um, and, uh, it's a shame that they're burned out, um, of mathematics being forced to learn a particular topic that is actually not very useful. So I would expect that if you ask the question, is mathematics necessary for programming? Um, and we think of mathematics as geometry uh in which the answer is no trigonometry in which the answer is yes for some 3d programming uh calculus no not necessary for programming linear algebra yes for certain optimization problems you know it really dep- depends on what the field is so much of computer programming is is discrete as opposed to uh um, you know it's 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 like in the in the integers so to speak I don't know. I don't remember what the first version of Windows is that used a floating point function, but I'm pretty sure that Windows 3.1 did not have a single floating point call anywhere in the operating system.
2: Yeah, I mean, just just to add to that, I uh, a lot of a lot of universities. I know where I went to school, the University of Virginia. The uh, the uh, computer science was tied to the uh, engineering school mm-hmm. and not the math department, which I appreciated because. I don't know. I just have I have a hard time. Maybe it's just because, first of yeah. all, I, I suck at the math, so let's just throw that out there. <laughs> but I never viewed these two topics as having a heck of a lot in common. I mean, logic and stuff like that, yes, no. but yeah. – pure math, like calculus and, and beyond, uh, no, I, I really struggle to see the connection. And I think in a, in a practical viewpoint, you have lots and lots of programmers who have never really even gone to college. <laughs> yeah. So that – and they might be really good programmers. So sure. to say that, oh, you have to know math to be a programmer. No, I that's mean, obviously dis- not the case. Yeah, you can disprove that, like, instantly. Now, there's uh, a co- –
0: um, yeah, I can, I, I can even think of, like, if I had to decide between a programmer you know, all else being equal, if I had to choose between a programmer who knew calculus and a programmer who had taken a class in anthropology, cultural anthropology, I would go for the anthropologist for sure. So more likely there's going to be something he learned about human beings that's going to be useful to him in designing good software than the, than there's going to be a need to do an integral <laughs> in the code, except for obviously very specified, mathematic, very specific mathematical code. On the other hand, on the other hand. You can think of lots of examples. Like, for example, if the Google guys had come up with their idea for PageRank, but they didn't have the the, uh, the linear algebra to, to actually implement it, mm-hmm. um, they may never have made Google. Like, just the fact and, – and linear algebra was a part of the, the CS curriculum when I was at Yale. So um, that was one thing, a mathema- a very specifically mathematical thing that I was forced to learn in order to be a computer scientist that has once in the history of the world actually demonstrably made billionaires.
2: Right. No, that's a good point. That's a classic paper. Although, to me, that doesn't even really feel like math. It just feels like logic, where you're proving, okay, if you have these links and you can't... I don't know, it just doesn't feel no, like really No, 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 like that's math. true, but, then, but,
0: but, but if you don't know how to solve it... You're talking about the PageRank paper, the original Google paper?
2: Yeah. Yeah, but
0: if you don't know the math necessary to solve all those equations simultaneously um, and, and realize that there is such a capability and that it's actually not so hard, then you may have just given up on your wonderful idea of using citations or, or incoming links
2: yeah, it's fair. I mean, we can certainly point to some famous, successful people that right. have a math background. Sure, and I, we can point to some that don't. So <laughs> these yeah. are just these are just anecdotes. Yeah. So, do you have a Stack Overflow
0: question? Oh, that let's like see. Let me week? look on my favorites list here. Favorites. Um, did we do? Did we do significant new inventions in computing since 1980? We did that, right? Yeah, we did. I just we forget- talked <laughs> to the Alan. Oh, excuse me, I just forgot to unfavorite it. I guess. Um. Why doesn't it disappear from my favorites list? Oh, and now it did. How about does it matter where you get your CS degree? And this is sure. This is becoming a community question. The question is, does going to a less famous university that might not be terribly selective necessarily preclude somebody from being considered for the elite software com- companies? What question number is this? One nine one three zero two. Google or Microsoft, Kay. regardless of my actual. Oh, uh, elite software companies, which he's considering, like, Google or Microsoft, regardless of my actual abilities. Furthermore, how often do you find your alumni places a factor when looking for a job? Thanks for
2: any responses. Um, Well, how do you guys look at it at Fog Creek? I mean, do
0: you? We, uh, uh, yeah, we... (laughs) I, 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 <laughs> Am I putting you on the spot? What n- the no, because if I could use just like one small example, and I think we're probably a relatively enlightened company, and even then we're not so enlightened. And, and the answer is that if I had two resumes that were otherwise identical, and one of them had evidence on it that the person in that resume has gone through some kind of screening process and passed, then I would rather talk to that person first. To save time, I would interview that person first, and that's what I call so the selectivity principle. I look for things on the resume that indicate some selection process of some sort, and that could even be getting into um, the, the the Coast Guard or or getting into the Marines. Uh, anything and um, anything where somebody uh, went through some kind of rigorous selection process and made it through there, all else mm-hmm. being equal, and I really literally mean that, all else being equal, then I will talk to that person first. I'll call that person first, and put them through the interview process first, because I think that in the long run, that's going to save me a little bit of time, because those people are a little tiny bit more likely to succeed in the rest of our interview process, because they have succeeded in somebody else's process, whatever that may be. And so when it comes to selective schools, we have a very specific principle where we say, uh, we have a detailed list of all the schools in the United States that accept fewer than 30% of their applicants. So I think it's 100, I don't know how many schools there are on that list, but schools that take less than 30% of the people that apply to them. And that's a criterion. And if you get that, then you're going to – all else being equal, you're going to get called first. And um, so you are actually a little bit more likely to get a job at Fogg Creek.
2: It does say right here of the second response by Matt J. Joel isn't bashful about being a college snob. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you can put it that way. Is that what you're saying now? Uh, well, it, it's the truth is the people that didn't go to Yale are just so lower class, dear. Uh- Do you really want to have to have lunch with somebody that went to Harvard or They're like riffraff, you know, really,
2: the riffraff that you really don't want.
0: Yeah, they're going to be probably mugging you in the elevator to take your money or something.
2: (laughs) Pookie, I don't want to have to sit with people like that at lunch. Yes. So really, just to summarize what you're saying, make sure I understood (laughs) it. uh, Really, the the breadth of experience on the resume trumps any one college reference. Uh, There's lots of other things that trump that,
0: and there's lots of ways that you can – uh, for example actually uh, for us having experience at microsoft because we know that microsoft has a pretty rigorous interview process so having a, an internship at microsoft to us is just as valuable as getting into an ivy league school both of those get you one point on on the on the 6 point scale that we have for deciding whether when, when to call you at one point to
2: call you so really it's just like getting a a point it's like kind of like yeah. if you're in the boy scouts when you get like a, mm-hmm. a merit badge like you get and enough it, of these merit badges and yep and yes, it's never used it, it?
0: It's never used to make a quote-unquote hiring decision. It's simply used to sort out all the huge quantities of resumes we receive and call people in the order in which they're most likely to get a job just to save time in, in the interviewing process.
2: So I guess the way to look at this then would be, okay, if, if you're deciding whether you to go to Stanford versus, like, you know, some local college that's not maybe as well-known. Go to Stanford. Um, <laughs> Just go. <laughs> Just do it. Yes. Do you, so really, you're yes. really coming out in favor of these big-name schools. Yes. from here. No,
0: it's not because of the big name. It's because of the selectivity. If you look at that list of selective schools, there's a bunch of schools in there you've never heard of that are small and selective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's this little school in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where you sit and read books in Latin and Greek for four years, and, you know, 700 people apply, and they take 12. You know? <laughs> so they're on the list because really? they're very good. Yeah. I, I, somebody, somebody will write in and remind me that. that's cool. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, uh, yeah, it's, 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 a it's like, it, it's, it's they, their entire curriculum is reading great books and they just have a curriculum of what they consider to be great books, uh, that they read. And that's the whole curriculum. But anyway, uh, the point is that they're selective. And similarly, we, we, we know certain companies that we know put people through a very rigorous interviewing process and, That is just as good as going to a good school. But wait, I actually feel like, to be honest, that Fog Creek is relatively enlightened. In other words, if I was interviewing somebody and they dropped out of elementary school in fourth grade, but they were brilliant and they just wowed me, um, there's no question that I wouldn't hire hire that person. I I would certainly hire them. I don't really care where you went to school. We have a lot of people here that didn't go to the most elite schools in the universe. And it's not a question of how big the name is. It's just a question as to whether... I can tell from what, what, what I can tell from your resume about whether or not I should uh, interview you first or if I should maybe wait until I'm running out of choices and then interview you. And um, yet I feel like there's also a lot of other companies, um, not Fog Creek, that, um, uh, that, don't, that aren't quite as enlightened and that will actually just literally just hire you because there's a, there's a name brand on your resume. There are definitely a lot of companies that will automatically hire people from certain schools. Um, So there's no question that you're going to open a lot more doors if you go to the school that's well-known and that has a a brand name. I don't want to say big name, but a a name as being either a, a quality school or a school where quality kids go or just maybe just a school with a reputation or a school that doesn't sound like a state school or anything like that.
2: Right. So, if you can't go to a school like that, then you definitely have to make up for it by doing some extraordinary or semi-notable things. Probably, so yeah. I guess that's the way you would balance that out. You're, I mean, what can I say?
0: A- you really, you're really going to get your money's worth in your career by going to the, the better school. And you, you may—I I, I hate to say this—I used to try to be really um, uh, a little bit more idealistic about it in some ways. You know, my parents uh, are uh, professors; were professors, and um, they—I um, uh, grew up in New Mexico because. Uh, at some point, they both wanted to be professors at the same in the same city and live live in the same city, and that left them with not very many choices because they had to get jobs for the, both of them. And uh, the University of New Mexico was on a hiring spree, and so they got jobs at the University of New Mexico, and went there. And um, uh, you know, I, I always sort of assumed, okay, there's going to be lots of high quality, smart kids all over the place. They're going to be, and there's there's going to be a whole class of kids that want to go to the University of New Mexico because they grew up in Albuquerque and. You know, if it's just where they are, and maybe they have family reasons or financial reasons to stay at home, and they're going to go to the University of New Mexico, no matter how smart they are and how likely it was that they could have gotten into Harvard, and um, and and so I always assumed that the big I, I, I call these I, I call these sort of re- regional schools. A regional school is a school that's going to attract people from the region who could very well have gotten into Yale or Harvard, but just didn't want to leave the region. And um, my mom said to me, "Yeah." <laughs> Don't don't overestimate the kids at the <laughs> University of <New> Mexico. <laughs> She's like, I could count on one hand the number of students I had <laughs> that were smart. Anyway, <laughs> now I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get all these letters from Albuquerque.
2: Well, I think the the letter the, the point is that you should try to challenge yourself and go to where yeah. universities that are really challenging their students. It's gonna you know? it's gonna and, pay and, off. It really is gonna pay off in your career. I uh, that's just the, that's just the way of the world, and, and but and the good if, news is, I think yeah. that there's not just like Yale and Harvard. I think there's there is a class. If you look at the top ten percent right. of universities, yes, there's, there's really a wide 000. range. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't feel like you would, like have to go to Stanford. You just have to go to a school that's selective, that's right. Right. known to be selective and challenge their students. Absolutely, that's reasonable advice. And I mean, in specific fields, any job,
0: yeah, and like, specific fields, there, there are schools. Like you could go to like Olin in in Boston, and this is something that nobody have ever has ever heard of, but it's very uh, uh, selective. And you'll get a better education in computer science or computer engineering than you would get at Harvard, definitely. So go there if you want to go to a small school. And, and, the, and the good news is I think a lot of the people that kind of complain about my snobbism towards schools are working on the assumption that Yale and Harvard are these elite places where the children of Yale, Yalies and Harvardites or whatever it is get to go in because they're legacies. And, and it's really just a way of the, the, the WASP classes protecting their um, social uh, – What's the word I'm looking for? Benefits. Standing. Standing exactly by letting their children go to these, and uh, that hasn't been true since 1969. I don't think none of these schools. All these schools are, uh, you know, almost entirely. Their applications are almost entirely based on uh, merit. They, they've been meritocracies for the last forty, fifty years. So if you think it's the Great Gatsby at Yale, that's just this is not realistic anymore. Just not right. true. So. Yeah, always, always stretch. I, I think I, I I always encourage people to stretch. I get occasionally I get email from like high school kids asking for advice, and I hate to give advice because I don't know anything about them. But, it, but if the advice is you is of the form, well, I have one kid wrote to me and he actually said I have a uh, scholarship, complete scholarship to Carnegie Mellon, um, or I could go to some local school that I'd never heard of. And I was like, are you freaking kidding? Go to Carnegie Mellon. Right. <laughs> it's like, no, but I think it's going to be kind of hard. And I'm like, just got a, a car to keep going. Stop it. You got a scholarship. Yes. Off you go. Uh, and then he wrote me after a year and said he was getting straight A's and was really happy there. And, and a lot of times kids get to, kid, especially kids from smaller towns and stuff like that, they get to these big universities where everybody's smart. And um, the reason they got there often is because they're smart, and they were the only smart kid in their high school, and everybody picked on them for being smart and reading Thucydides and stuff like that. And then they get there, and everybody's talking about Thucydides, you know? And it's just all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, this is like a whole school full of people just like me, the one freak in my high school. And everybody here is like that and, that, and it's just awesome.
2: Right. That's how I think of California, actually. But now we have the internet. <laughs> we have the internet, which does that as well. That's so. true. You can, find, good, you, can find,
0: you can find the other, the other weird people that read Greek literature in the original.
2: Oh, I love that. I mean, I, it's all about finding the weird people that are into the same stuff as you. That's what we're doing right now, which is why it's so beautiful. That Yeah, but, we got our 11 listeners now. I think we're exactly. in double digits on the Stack well, Overflow podcast. On that note, we should probably end before we go over too long. Absolutely. Uh, our closing notes. So we do have a telephone number you can call if you would like to submit an audio question to us. That is 646-826-3879. You can also email us an audio file, 90 seconds or less, please, at podcast at stackoverflow.com, and we try to get to some of those. We also have a wiki for people that uh, can't listen to the audio or don't want to listen to the audio. Uh, that'll be in the show notes if you would like to help us do a transcription. That is very much appreciated. Uh, anything else, Joel? That's about it. We have a special guest host
0: on next week, Michael Lopp from uh, uh, the website Rands in Repose.
2: Yeah, that'll be a good one next week, Rands.
0: Rans rans. So the,
2: <laughs> rans, 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 I guess the, that's it for this week. <laughs> See you next week. Yeah.
1: You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a five hundred one c three nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is... Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.